So let us gather around with our, our copies of God's Word and hopefully also supplemental to that, a, a copy of your confession will be helpful as we continue our study through the doctrine of divine providence. The doctrine of divine providence. And our, our, our task today is to consider the doctrine of divine providence with respect to reprobation. A reprobation. And, and that's a, a, a thoroughly biblical term that just simply means those who are not elect. The, the, the way that our confession, in fact, this precise wording that our confession uses in that regard is wicked and ungodly. And so we want to think about the doctrine of providence with respect to the wicked and ungodly. So let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us uh, as we have noted at several points along the way in this study of divine providence, we, we need God's help every time we open the Word of God, right? We, we always are in need of His Spirit's illumination. But there are doctrines that, are, that make that especially clear to us, right? That we need the illuminating work of the Spirit of God for us to be able to understand and apply these doctrines. So let's go to the Lord and help for His help and ask Him to send His Spirit to us this morning. Our Father, we are grateful that you have made yourself known to us in your word. We're grateful that although you are a God who is transcendent and glorious and beyond our comprehension, that you have spoken the worlds into existence, that you govern all things from the greatest to the least, that your, your wisdom surpasses even our comprehension. And yet, you have revealed yourself in ways that we can, we can articulate, uh, we can formulate with human words uh, to describe the revelation of the Most High. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will help us uh, to, to understand the meaning of the words that you give to us, understand the concepts and the ideas that we ought to know about our true and living God, and, and specifically today how it is that you relate to those who are wicked and ungodly, those who have rebelled against you and who will not turn from death to life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so as I mentioned, our, our task today is to look at paragraph 6. Paragraph five and, paragraphs 5 and 6 really should be understood together. They're, they're sort of two sides of one coin. Paragraph 5, we looked at this last week, considers God's divine providence with respect to his people, with respect to the elect. We saw that in paragraph 5, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children. And, and we, we looked at what does it mean that God leaves us to our own sin and folly to accomplish his purposes. Paragraph 6, on the other hand, we contemplate the use of sin to accomplish God's good purposes even among the reprobate, even, about, even among those his enemies. And how do we think rightly about that? How do we think from the Scriptures, how do we think after God's own mind that he has declared in his word about himself, about his relationship and his dealings with the wicked, the ungodly, the perpetually and irrevocably unrepentant. Let's read together paragraph 6 in our confession in chapter 5. Chapter 5, paragraph 6, as for those wicked and ungodly. So we see that the subject or the, the, the object of our, of our uh, examination has changed from those who are God's own people. Now the lens turns, as it were, to the wicked and ungodly. As for those wicked and ungodly men whom God, as the righteous judge, for former sin doth blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had, and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin, and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, 
whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God useth for the softening of others. May the Lord give us understanding of, of these things. First of all, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expand this under four headings that we, we draw from the paragraph itself. And the first one is, is simply a reminder. It's the theme that we want to strike again and again and again. We have since the very first paragraph, and that has to do with the good character of God. Whatever we think and however we meditate upon the doctrine of divine providence, we must always, 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 always begin with who God is. With, with who he is, before we contemplate what he does, we need to consider who he is. And, and this paragraph, again, reminds us, as for those wicked and ungodly men, that's, that's our contemplation, that's the object of our, of our thoughts this morning. And in paragraph 6, but it says, God as the righteous judge. God as the righteous judge. And, and this reminds us, even in just that, that, those two little words, righteous judge, of who God is, of his good character. It takes us back to paragraph 1, God the good creator of all things. We see in paragraph 5, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God, which takes us back to chapter 2 and on, on theology proper, the doctrine of God. So when we think about the, the doctrine of divine providence, and, and particularly as it relates to how does divine providence relate to those who are wicked and ungodly, we start with the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God. And as Paul meditates upon those things in Romans 9, 9, 10, and 11, he, he, he wrestles with that very thing, and then he says, so is there any injustice in God? I mean, for God to choose one, Jacob, in Paul's illustration, to save. And before he was even born, before he ever did good or evil, God set his love and affection upon him. But on the other hand, Esau, before he was born, also before he had opportunity to do good deeds or evil deeds, God hated him. And, and Paul says from the Old Testament, God shows mercy upon whom he will show mercy. Well, then Paul asks the question, well, that, does that mean that there's injustice on God's part? Because God has withheld something from Esau that he gave to Jacob. Is there injustice on God's part? And, and Paul's answer, of course, you know, may it never be. Absolutely not. I mean, if, if, uh, if you were writing this to a, 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 as a text message to somebody, it would have nine exclamation marks, wouldn't it? Absolutely not. So the first thing we want to remember, and I'm not going to expand any further upon that because we've covered this already, is, is the goodness of God. Begin with God's character. He is the just judge. But the second thing we want to see is that <clears throat> he, it is actually the fact, with, with respect to the wicked and ungodly men, that God withholds his grace whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding. Well, of course, to use the same example of Jacob and Esau, if you read honestly through the life of Jacob, was, it, was, it, was there any merit in Jacob's life that justified God's gracious grace being poured out upon him? No. Jacob was a scoundrel. Jacob was a trickster. He was dishonest. He rebelled against God, outwardly and inwardly, and yet God had set his love upon him. Esau, on the other hand, there were some redeeming qualities with Esau. He was a hard-working man. He was a man's man. But God withheld the light of his grace from, from Esau. And, and the, the, <clears throat> the New Testament writers pick up on this thing. For example, the, the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians, beginning in chapter 2, says this, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteousness all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved and for this reason here's here's the statement that Paul makes and for this reason God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That was one of two ways we can read this. One of them is that God sends this, sends what Paul calls a 
a strong delusion, as if this is an, an, an active work of God in order to cloud their minds, in order to close their ears to understanding, to close their eyes to seeing, to close their minds to some sort of, of cognition and, and, and understanding. Or we can say the other, the other way to read this, and this is the accurate way to read it, is that man naturally does not have any of those capacities, and God is under, under no obligation to provide it for him. And in the absence of God's active work to provide understanding, man cannot understand. Listen to the way R.C. Sproul explains this. All that God has to do to harden people's hearts is to remove the restraints. We think about that. That's all God has to do. It is not that God has to actively press in upon them the hardness. It is not that God has, has to, as an act of his will, and an assault upon man's nature, makes him hard and unregenerate and unwilling to receive God's word. So Sproul goes on, all that God has to do to harden people's hearts is to remove the restraints. He gives them a longer leash. Rather than restricting their human freedom, he increases it. He lets them have their own way. In a sense, he gives them enough rope to hang themselves. It is not that God puts his hand on them to create fresh evil in their hearts. He merely removes his holy hand of restraint from them and lets them do their own will. That's a frightening concept, isn't it? It is not that God has to impose upon the human creature rebelliousness. God does not have to create in us deception, does he? And again, as I look around the room and I see young children, uh, as parents we know this from a very early age, we don't have to teach our children, for example, we don't have to teach them how to lie. That's not something they learn only from other kids. You could take a, 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 an only child who's never been around any other child on the planet. That child will still be a liar by, by nature, right? They, they will intuitively, innately, offer falsehoods as an explanation for what they do. That's the depravity that resides within us. And what has to happen is there has to be a restraining force the other direction, which as we've been talking about in our, our parenting class, that's, that's the reason that we must, especially in those earlier years, prioritize correction over instruction. Not an absence of instruction, but a priority of correction. Why? Because the scriptures tell us that folly is bound up, absolutely bound up, in the heart of a child. And sometimes, as parents, we can confuse correction with distraction. So a child is, is doing something they're not supposed to do, and rather than correcting that, we simply distract them. We offer them another vice instead. And what are we doing then? We're training their flesh to seek something else, one vice to fulfill another one, rather than receiving a correction, rather than training the flesh to simply be subdued and for sin to be mortified. And what happens God says, or the scriptures say to the, to the reprobate, God restrains. He doesn't give that correction. He withholds the light of his countenance. He does not correct their thinking and their conduct and their behavior. So in a sense, as parents, we don't want to imitate, do we? God's dealing with the reprobate. We want to deal with our children as true sons. The writer of Hebrews, of course, says we true sons are the ones that God corrects. It's what he disciplines, it's what he chastens. So God withholds his enlightening grace. Look back at paragraph 6. As for the wicked and ungodly men, whom God, as the righteous judge for former sin, doth blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace. So that's, that's the first thing that we see with respect to the reprobate, is God withholds that enlightening grace. He withholds his affirmative instruction and his corrective discipline that he gives to his own children. But as we go through our outline, the third point here is that God also, look at it says, he not only withholds his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth 
the gifts which they had and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin. So what we see here is God doing really three things as the righteous judge. He withholds, he withdraws, and he abandons. He withholds, he withdraws, and he abandons. He withholds his enlightening grace. And then we also see that he withdraws. What exactly does he withdraw? What does he withdraw from wicked men? According to our confession, he withdraws or withholds, or he withdraws the gifts which they had. He withdraws the gifts which they had. Now, often in our confession of faith, we have we have we come across words that are really easy, simple words in English, and we we need to labor to discover what exactly was meant by that. So here, word gift. It's a little four-letter word. We all are familiar with it. I don't need to get the, the dictionary out to define for you what a gift is, right? But we do need to ask what exactly is the gift or gifts which God withdraws. Because God has given all kinds of gifts to mankind, has he not? I mean, the rain that falls on both the just and the unjust. He's given given food and life and breath. He's given all good things to all kinds of men. Is Is that what it's talking about? No, there's a very specific thing that the Puritans have in mind when they speak of this kind of gift being withdrawn by God. What is the gift? What does this phrase mean, withdraw the gifts? Stated plainly, it means that God removes from them the ministry of his word. That's what the, the writers of our confession intend when they say that, and by the way, this, is, this, this paragraph is almost identical to Westminster and the Savoy. So this is something that we, we're going to say word for word for word with our Presbyterian and congregational brothers. Sometimes he withdraweth the gifts which they had. <clears throat> Dr. Renahan explains it this way. He says, when the Puritans spoke of withdrawing gifts, they were speaking about gospel ministers, i.e. God's instruments to bring his word to people. The point of this sentence in paragraph 5.6 is that as an act of judgment, the Lord removes the messengers of the gospel from people who reject him in order to pursue their sins. The next step is that God gives them over to lusts. He allows these people to experience further temptations so that in the three ways they deepen their sin, the flesh, lusts, the world, and the devil, the power of Satan, he abandons them to these things and they rush headlong in pursuit of them. So what is God doing here? He's removing the light of his word. And my mind immediately goes to Amos, where Amos prophesied about a famine, not a famine of bread, but a famine of the word of God, the worst of all famines. So God here, not only does he withhold his enlightening grace by by which men might understand the truth and and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. God withholds that because it it, it is only by an active work of God that men are able to understand and discern spiritual things. Men left to their own devices cannot understand. In fact, they don't want to understand the things of God. But not only does God withhold his enlightening grace, but he withdraws from them even his gifts, and particularly the Word of God. Sometimes that that can look like this. Sometimes that means in a particular place, the Word of God isn't even there anymore. It's no longer preached. There are no more faithful churches. There are no more faithful gospel preachers. Other times, it's more personal. The Word of God is still there, but from a particular individual, it, it can't be heard. And, and that man may, that woman may, that young man, that young woman may sit in the presence of sound teaching, and yet it's withdrawn from them. Their ears are not able to hear it. They're not able to understand it. So at the same time that God withdraws these gifts, he also exposes them, these same people, the wicked and ungodly, 
to objects or circumstances that will provoke their sin from within. And of course we see this uh, consistently in the Scriptures, a, a threefold attack, if you will, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And so just as God is withdrawing those gifts from him, from such a man, he's also exposing, necessarily. It is, and again, this is not that God has to, to contrive circumstances in which the reprobate, the wicked and ungodly, are exposed to things that will corrupt them or tempt them, right? Everything, everything is a source of such corruption, isn't it? From the world, the flesh, and the devil. But there's one more thing. We see that God, the righteous judge, withholds, withdraws, And the last verb that we should look at is he abandons. He withdraws, he withholds, and he abandons. He abandons them to what? To their own sin. To their own sin. Look at the very last phrase. And with all, he gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan. We see that same threefold emphasis repeated, don't we? He gives them over to their own lust, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves, even under those means which God useth for the softening of others. So here, the deficiency is not in the means. And we speak regularly about the ordinary means of grace. The preaching of the Word of God and prayer and, and the, the, the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Those very same means that God uses effectually in the lives of His people to, to convince us of sin, to convince us of His righteousness and glory and mercy, and, and to draw us nearer and nearer by farther steps to Himself, conforming us to the very image of Christ in holiness. Those very same means that he uses for the perfecting of one, he uses for the condemnation and for the further hardening of another. Isn't this the the emphasis of Romans 1? And you'll see in your your confession, if you have a copy that includes the footnotes, the very first footnote listed is Romans 1. And it is there that the Apostle Paul testifies that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Well, that that echoes very closely how paragraph 6 in our confession begins, doesn't it? As for those wicked and ungodly men. Romans 1, Paul in verse 18, Paul says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against un- ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. See, it is not God suppressing the truth for them, is it? It is their own dullness. It is their own unrighteousness. It is their own sinful condition that is suppressing that truth. Paul goes on to say, for what can be known about God is plain to them, or at least it ought to be, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, the created world is such that the divine attributes of God are sufficiently plain that man has no excuse whatsoever to rebel against whatever light he has received. Now, that natural light, of course, is not sufficient to reconcile a man to God, but it is sufficient to remove all the, all excuse that he has, to say, well, I, I, I didn't know that I should be seeking after God and his righteousness. I didn't know that I should see God as a righteous judge. That should be plain to every man. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, or we could say for this reason, or because 
God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. See, because of of their idolatry, because of the hardness of men's hearts, because of their wickedness and stubborn rebellion against God, God gave them up. I'm not sure there are any more frightening words in all of Scripture than those. God gave them up. If we begin to grasp how utterly dependent we are, how every breath we take is dependent upon divine grace. How every, however, how every motion of our bodies, thoughts of our minds, movements of our person in any way is, is dependent upon God. And whatever we, gifts we have spiritually are, are gifts of, or evidences of God's grace, then a terrifying thing to, be think, to think about is that God would give one up. That God would, in a sense, remove his hand of benevolent gift, but also of restraint from a man or a woman, and say, if you want your sin, I'll let you have it. You know, it's one of the most grievous things for a parent, an earthly parent, to contemplate. If a son or a daughter has become so rebellious, so ungovernable, in a sense, in your home, that you have to say, I'm going to give you over to your own folly. I, I, I realize as a parent that I may actually be standing in the way of God's dealing with you. And so I, as a parent, I want to give you over to those things that you're wanting to explore those things that you're wanting to pursue, those very sinful things, those foolish things, how much more, how much infinitely more ought it, ought it to frighten us of the prospect of God giving one over to their own flesh, to the lust of their own hearts? Yes, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that's, that's exactly right. The example of church discipline. Uh, Gina drew up that, or brought up that illustration of Matthew 18, for example. Here, here's the scene where, where Jesus says, this is the disciples ask, I mean, what do I think about one who sinned against me? Do I, have to, do I have to forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus, of course, said no, 70 times seven. And he tells a parable about a sheep that was lost and a shepherd leaving 99 and going to restore the one who had gone away. And then he tells, gives the command. If your brother has sinned against you, you go to him privately. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he doesn't, you take with you one or two witnesses. If he will not listen to the witnesses, then you tell it to the church. And then he contemplates something very frightening. If, if they will not listen even to the church... Let that one be to you like a sinner and a tax collector. In other words, a sinner was one who was outside of the covenant of grace. It was outside of God's covenant dealing with his people. And it's just so you're recognizing that person is outside of God's gracious dealing with men. And a tax collector, that was one who was in the covenant by birth, by outward circumcision, but rebelled against it. Was a traitor to the cause, in a sense. <laughs> So yes, Matthew 18 is a, is a tangible illustration of even the church acting in a judicial way. It's a judicial declaration that this one will not hear the word of God. And because they will not hear the word of God, which is one of the chief indicators of being a Christian, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So Jesus basically says if one proves by private admonition, by admonition with multiple witnesses, and by admonition from the entire church body, that they will not listen. It may be that you're dealing with someone who is outside of God's covenant. It might be that you're dealing with the wicked and ungodly, and the church itself recognizes what God is doing. 
and delivers them over. In fact, that's the language that Paul uses in the pastoral epistles, is to deliver one over to Satan for the buffeting of the flesh, in the hopes that their spirit and their soul will one day be restored. So in various places in the scriptures, we, we read about God hardening hearts. And, and one of the, the most dramatic places, of course, is in the Exodus with respect to Pharaoh. And so when you read through Exodus, for example, in Exodus chapter 7 and Exodus chapter 14, we see the terms used almost interchangeably, and it, and it might seem at first like it's at odds, that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then another place it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, which is it? Did, did Pharaoh harden his heart, or did God harden his heart? Yes. The answer is yes. But by what means did God harden Pharaoh's heart? By removing his hand of grace. Not because God actively imposed upon Pharaoh a hardness of heart, but because apart from God's gracious work, Pharaoh's default and ongoing and stubborn position would have been a hardening of his heart. So again, Dr. Renahan, how do we resolve these verses, speaking about these texts describing Pharaoh? The answer is close at hand, in the doctrine of first and second causes. The first cause of Pharaoh's hardening is God's decree to withhold grace, executed providentially by upholding, directing, and governing the king's corrupt and self-hardening nature to that end. The second cause is Pharaoh's acting freely according to his wicked nature to commit the sin with the result that he hardened himself. Pharaoh's actions were his own, and yet they fulfilled the purpose of God. His design was that Pharaoh would refuse the gracious message brought by Moses, and in refusing that message, confirm his own downward spiral into sin, and ultimately leading to both temporal judgment death in the flood of the Red Sea, and eternal judgment for failing to receive and believe God's messengers. So we have a picture here of Pharaoh hardening his own heart, and at the same time, it is right for us, it is right for the Scriptures to say, God did this. God was the first cause. God, according to his decree made it so that, such that Pharaoh would harden his own heart so that God could deliver his people by his own mighty hand and outstretched arm and execute his judgment, his just condemnation upon Pharaoh. So as for the wicked and ungodly men, we could put in parentheses there, like Pharaoh, whom God as the righteous judge for former sin doth blind and harden. And we see there, God here withholds his grace. He withdraws the light of his countenance. What did he withdraw from Pharaoh? Pharaoh had a prophet sent to him. Pharaoh had Moses and Aaron sent to him to declare to him the word of God. But he wouldn't listen. And so what did God do? He withdrew that. And in the withdrawing of his word, of his messenger, God exposed Pharaoh to circumstances that would provoke the hardening of his heart. He exposed Pharaoh to the world, the flesh, and the devil. If we had time, we could kind of work through, we could turn to Exodus and work through that, but the ways, the specific ways in which, or the manifold ways in which God exposed Pharaoh to the corruptions of his own heart. His own pride, right? His own lust for power and control. How God exposed Pharaoh to the world. Where the world itself was a, a temptation, a source of provocation to Pharaoh's sin. And of course, the devil. There was a, a demonic sort of influence over Pharaoh. God is not the one who, who imposed a hardness of heart upon him. It was his own flesh. We've been working through 
<clears throat> the book of Joshua in our family devotions. And we, we, the other night we were reading in, in Joshua chapter 11. If you want to turn with me here, I think there's a wonderful illustration in Joshua, uh, really 9 and 11. <clears throat> in Joshua chapter 9, you, you, you know well the, the story. God has taken his people finally across the Jordan River. And the first city that they encounter is Jericho. Here's this mighty walled city, and of course God gives them the city, not, not by traditional means of warfare, but they, they march around the city, they blow trumpets, and the walls fall down. God gives them the city. Then they come to another large and fortified city, the city of Ai, and God gives that city into their hands. And then we find out in chapter 9, we're introduced to a people known as the Hivites. And among the Hivites is a particular city known as Gibeah. And so we know these as the Gibeonites from Gibeah. They are Hivites by ethnicity. But in chapter 9, something very interesting happens. Verse 3, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for the donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us then. How can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? And they said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the, two, to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants, come now, make a covenant with us. Now, as you read the story, you find out that's all a ruse. I mean, it was all pretend. They dressed themselves in such a way, they even took bread that was all crumbly and, and made it look as if they had traveled weeks or months to arrive here and said, well, you can make a covenant with us. We're no threat. We're a long way off. Now, why do they do this? Well, they're afraid. And so in their cunning, this was, this was all deception, but they, they, they wanted to make peace with God. They wanted to make peace with Israel because they were, I should say this, they wanted to make peace with Israel because they were afraid of Israel's God. I shouldn't state it in the form of they wanted to make peace with God. That's not what it said. They wanted to make peace with Israel because they were afraid of Israel's God. Now, contrast that. Turn over to chapter 11. Here, we're introduced to a multiplicity of kings who also heard the same reports, who also were filled with the same terror, who also had the same fear of Israel and Israel's God. But what do they do? They conspire together. They figure, they reason thus, if we all get together and marshal our resources, then we can defeat Israel and Israel's God. Well, I don't have to tell you, it didn't work. And they were all thoroughly defeated. But look at verse 16. All right, so let's back up to verse 9. <clears throat> verse 9, Joshua did to them just as the Lord had said. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction there was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire in all the cities of those kings and all their kings. Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses 
the servant of the Lord had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock and the, and the people of Israel and, and the livestock, the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Continuing there in verse 16, So Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negeb, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland from Mount Helak, which rises toward Seir, as far as Baal God, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings, and struck them, and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. Look at verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. So here is a vivid illustration of what we're reading about in our confession in chapter 5, paragraph 6 as to the wicked and ungodly. God, the righteous judge, withholds from them the light of his countenance. He withholds from them his enlightening work that could have made these kings humble themselves in sackcloth and ashes and beg for mercy. Not only that, but God withdrew from them. I should say he, he, he um, withheld from them his restraining grace. He withdrew from them even the gifts that they might have had. He withdrew the, the, the prophetic gift that they could have had through Joshua to hear the word of God. Through the priests that God had established, they could have heard the word of God, but God withdrew that from them. And not only that, but he abandoned them to their sin. And we're told here, in a sense, in Joshua chapter 11, verse 20, God pulls back the curtain, pulls back the veil, so that we can see what was going on in the secret mind of providence. We don't always get that view. We're not entitled to that view. But God in his wisdom here does give that to us. He, in a sense, let me, let me pull the curtain back, let you look through the window of divine providence and see God intended this for the purpose of devoting all of them to utter destruction. And now we have the question that echoes back to Paul's mind. Is there any injustice on God's part here? No. These were wicked men who sought to destroy God's people. And God left them to that corrupt influence, to that corrupt inward impulse. He left them to that. And therefore, God was completely just and justified to bring them to total destruction, even the women and little ones, because they all participated in this rebellion. And saints, this becomes a foreshadowing, it becomes a type of an eschatological judgment, doesn't it? Because on the day when Christ returns, there will not be one man or woman or child who can say, I have an excuse. There is not one man or woman or child who will be able to say on that day, God is dealing with me unjustly. God is, 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 not, acting, is not being fair to me. When God hardens the heart, and here in verse 20, it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts. What did God have to do in order to harden their hearts, to simply leave them. Just withdraw his grace from them, and their own sinful, stubborn uh, hearts would take care of the rest, wouldn't it? Just as mine would, just as yours would. If God were to withdraw or remove. And so we saw last week with respect to his people, 
does God withdraw and remove his countenance from his own people? Sometimes. In fact, the language in our confession is oftentimes. But it is for a good, redemptive purpose. It is not to bring us to destruction. It is actually to, to what? To help discover within us sin, weaknesses. And, and, and provoke in us a greater dependence, a greater need for the Lord. But what does God do using the same device with respect to his enemies? Withholding, withdrawing, abandoning. God does not abandon his own people. He will withhold, he will withdraw, but only for a time. Only in measure. But for the wicked, God will utterly withhold. He will utterly withdraw, and he will abandon. And that's the picture we see in Joshua chapter 9 and Joshua chapter 11. And even among, this is where the, the doctrine of divine election um, is, is, is not exactly on display here in chapters 9 and 11, because there's no evidence, for example, that the Gibeonites who committed deception and who were, uh, their lives were spared, they were made permanent servants, but they were, their lives were spared, but there's no evidence that that equated to God saving them eternally. But it does serve as, as a picture, doesn't it? That to some... Even among the Hivites, the majority of the Hivites were devoted to destruction. Only those from Gibeah who set out to, again, deceptively, but somehow to make peace, make a covenant with Israel in order to spare their hides, God delivered them. And so it's a picture between the difference between uh, if we go back to chapter five in our, or chapter six in our five, chapter five in our confession, paragraph five and six, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave his for a season his own children to manifold temptations and corruptions of their own hearts. In paragraph six, as for those wicked and ungodly men, whom God is the righteous judge for former sin doth blind and harden. What's the difference between those who are God's own children, and those who are wicked and ungodly. The active work of God's grace upon them. There's nothing, nothing passive on God's part that can bring a man, to bring a woman, to be reconciled to him. It takes, in fact, it takes a supernatural, infinitely powerful act of the Holy Spirit to bring new life to the heart of a cold, dead sinner, doesn't it? It takes an infinite, active work of God to accomplish such a thing. Does it take an infinite, an active work of God to produce the opposite effect? No. It simply is God's withdrawing, withholding, and abandoning. And man will produce his corruption on his own. Man can accomplish his damnation just fine on his own. But man can never accomplish his salvation, his rebirth on his own. So look ne next time, and I think it's, it's the shortest paragraph in the chapter on divine providence, but I think it's one of the sweetest and most encouraging to us. And we'll look at that short one next week before we begin our study on the fall of man. Any questions about this this last one with respect to Doctrine of Divine Providence and the Reprobate. Matthew. Yes. Um, I think it's tying the two periods. So your question is, the, the very last phrase, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God useth for the softening of others. Or it, so the question is, why is that kind of final statement there? Because it does seem somewhat redundant, doesn't it? I think the intention is, is, is twofold. One, it, it, it does immediately tie paragraphs 5 and 6 together. And so we have this compare and contrast. And that last, that last little phrase reminds us whereby it comes to pass that they, this is the reprobate, the ungodly and wicked, harden themselves even under those means which God uses for the softening of others, 
which would be his own children, right? So we have that contrast. But also, it has the other effect of taking us back to paragraph 3. God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. It's a reminder that God uses means, and some of those means, if he empowers those means, will produce life, right? But apart from divine enabling, the means itself will accomplish nothing. So how does that help us think of something like, I don't know, baptismal regeneration? There's nothing in the means, right? The means itself is only efficacious because God enables it to be. It is by God's power, not the means itself. Uh, the, the, the so-called Eucharist ha- has no power in itself. It just is bread. It remains only bread. It remains only wine. And some have given, almost in a pagan sense, have given power to the thing itself. And so one of the things that last statement does is help us orient and remember the power is not in the thing. It's the one who gives the thing. Does that help? Good question. All right. We'll we'll close there then, and we'll pick up next Lord's Day with that short but sweet paragraph 7. Let's pray, and we'll take some time to prepare ourselves to worship the true and living God. Father, we are grateful that in your kind providence you've brought us here today, that you've, you've put us under your word. You've, you've placed before us precious and very great promises that our, our Savior dwells among us in the person of his Spirit. We thank you, that Holy Spirit, that you dwell not only within us individually, but corporately. You inhabit the praises of your people. And so we pray that you will help us not only to understand, but but to worship according to this doctrine of providence. That our our hearts would be more eager uh, to call upon you for the power that is necessary to save our children, our loved ones, our our neighbors, our co-workers. Lord, apart from your working, none of our labors will be of any profit apart from your your power and your strength and your mercy, all men would perish in their sins. And we, we praise you that you have, in your, your kindness toward us, made yourself known. And we pray, uh, Lord, that you would make yourself known in our midst today as we gather to worship. Uh, for those who are yet outside of Christ, uh, we pray that you would not harden their hearts today, but instead that you would provide for them the light the heat, the understanding that they need to to look upon Christ and embrace him and him alone to be reconciled with you. We ask this for his name's sake. Amen.